You can turn over to Romans 12. We want to begin this little series on the transforming power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel. And today we want to simply look at the gospel expects sacrifice. That's what it expects. And before we read our text, I just want to point out that there are many thousands of people today, including many genuine Christians even, who are flocking to various churches and conferences and seminars and all kinds of things in search of one thing, personal benefit. That's what they're interested in. They're interested in benefits that are practical, emotional, and spiritual. And they hope that they'll receive these benefits when they don the door of a conference or a seminar or even a church. And unfortunately, they think that somehow if they can just listen to one more sermon, sing just one more hymn or song of praise, or go to one more conference or seminar, that somehow everything will line up perfectly in their Christian life. And they'll no longer struggle. And they're looking, basically, this group of people that I'm speaking about, are looking to have their felt needs met by the Savior. Their felt needs. When you stop and you think about felt needs, it's just that. It's what we feel we need. It may not be what we need. How many times have you thought you needed something when you knew you didn't? Or it ended up you didn't. You felt you did, but you bought it and it was empty. I read this illustration this last week, and I just want to open up with this because it's a very telling way to express the gospel in words. And you may have heard this before, this illustration, but I I want to share it anyway. Imagine that there are two men boarding a flight that will take them across the country. After they board the plane, they're into the flight a bit, and the stewardess comes and offers a parachute to them. And they're told to hold on to it throughout the flight. Each man is given a different reason why he should take and hold on to that parachute. The first man is told, if you really want to enjoy this flight, if you want to have true peace as you're flying today, meaningful, happy, contented, prosperous flight, then take this parachute, put it on your back and wear it the entire trip. We guarantee that you'll have a great flight. Not just any old flight, but a truly abundant flight. And so this man has been on many flights before, and he knows how uncomfortable something like wearing a parachute can be on an airplane. And he's aware that this contraption will probably make him appear foolish to other passengers on the plane He probably won't take it because, after all, he sees no real need for the thing. He feels no danger. But let's just say that he was convinced to take the parachute. Maybe he has seen tri-parachute bumper stickers and thinks to himself, maybe this thing can really improve my trip. Maybe it can really give me joy and purpose that I've been searching for in all these flights that I've taken. Now, you know as well as I do, as soon as the bulk and the weight of this parachute makes him uncomfortable on the flight, or someone comes along and mocks him for wearing this crazy contraption on his back, or his need for peace, joy, happiness, meaning, and contentment are no longer felt, he's probably going to discard the parachute in order to make his flight really more enjoyable. 
That's the first man. The second man on this plane has been offered a parachute as well. But the reasons that he is told that he needs this parachute and that he needs to cling to this parachute is very different than the reasons given the first man. The second man is simply told this, this plane is going to crash. And if you want to live and avoid a tragic end, then you must take this parachute as your only hope of surviving and put it on your back. Now, it sounds like a silly illustration, but this second passenger being fully persuaded of the danger to come would gladly take that parachute. And I think that there would be no amount of mocking from the other passengers or discomfort that the chute may seem to cause. Who cares? You're the one that's going to live because you got the parachute, even though it may be uncomfortable. That chute becomes very dear to that individual. And you have to ask yourself why. Because he's convinced that it's the only way that he's going to survive that flight is to wear that parachute on his back. And the point is this, beloved, if you offer Jesus as merely a fix-all to our own perceived felt needs, our own problems, our own needs, then when the seriousness of those problems diminish or the felt need is no longer felt, then so is our value of Christ diminished. If, on the other hand, Christ is presented as the only refuge from the wrath of God, which is now and also to come, and if we argue that this wrath is, is there, it's real, whether we feel it or not, and if we present the law of God and to make the case about the real need of men, and if we also plead with men to take this same Jesus as their own, it is this point that we have presented the objective biblical truth about the value of having Christ If one were to be convinced of his need to be reconciled to a holy God and sense the real danger of the pending judgment of the unregenerate heart, he would cry out for help. See, I can perceive my needs differently at different times. We all do, depending on our emotional state, depending on our circumstances. But God clearly states in his word that my real problem, the real problem is set forth, and the real problem is my sin. I have to trust in his assessment of my need even more than I would trust the diagnosis of a faithful doctor who, even though I'm absent of any felt symptoms, tells me that the test that he ran shows a serious illness and I need to take this medication. Even though I don't feel sick, I would probably take the medication and listen to the doctor's advice. See, Jesus Christ came into a lost and dying world. And we have to be faithful as believers to proclaim the gospel in a true way. Jesus simply stated the purpose of his coming was to seek and to save what? That which was lost. And in John chapter 6, Jesus rebuked the crowd for following him only because he had filled their bellies with bread. See, the crowd wanted their felt needs met. And he told them basically not to seek after temporary things that they thought they needed, but rather to pursue the things that God said they really needed. And many, the Bible tells us, the gospel tells us, that many walked away from Christ at that point. They weren't interested in following that kind of Jesus. I mean, when he was popular and all the crowds, and boy, he was feeding them and everything was party, party, well, hey, that was great. But as soon as their felt needs 
weren't being met any longer, and on the horizon loomed persecution and suffering for the cause of Christ, many people left the Savior who were once following him. And I guess this morning as we open up this chapter 12, I want to ask you simply, have you recognized your real need See, if you've come to the understanding that your greatest need in your life is not the temporary things that we often think we need, but that the real need is what? Be forgiven of our sin and to be reconciled to God. Then you know what? That's a blessed place to be. But if that's not the case here this morning, I would beg, I would plead with you to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Turn to Christ alone in faith that you may escape the wrath of God to come, which is a very certain reality. Now with that, I want to read verses 1 and one to uh, 2 of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, before we get into the text, we have to understand some foundational truths about us as believers. And these are very basic, but they're very important. Because if we don't understand those, we can go into this text misunderstanding what Paul is implying. And the first foundational truth that I want us to understand is that we are not our own. We are not our own. This principle is so foundational to the the doctrines of the Christian life that you have to be careful to lay this out. You know, when you notice they build a house, they don't just put up some timber and throw some cement in it and call it the foundation. Usually the foundation has a foundation. They prepare the ground. They do a soil test. They make sure that maybe there's some gravel down there for drainage before they put the concrete in. And see, and that's what I want us to understand. Before we jump into Romans chapter 12 and look at some of the the practical application of Romans chapters 1 through 11, we need to understand these very foundational truths. And the first truth here is that, you know what, you are not your own if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ. Here's the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And then he says this, you are not your own. You were what? Bought with a price. And again, a little later on in 1 Corinthians, verse 23 of chapter 7, he says, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And so you ask, well, what were we bought with? What is the price? Why aren't we our own as believers? And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19 points that out. It says, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed. That word redeem means to be purchased. It has the idea of the slave market, of someone being purchased as a slave. He says, you were not redeemed with silver and gold from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. 
Well, how were we redeemed? What does Peter say? He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, in that passage, that word redemption means to buy back or to be bought again. It's one of those key words that describes the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross through his death, through his resurrection. And so, redemption refers to buying something or someone. Here, it has the slave market in view, as I said. And in the slave market, basically, in which we who are sinners are being offered to whomever will bid the highest price. And you say, well, who's bidding on us? Well, the world is ready to bid, for sure. The world is throwing all kinds of bids at us, particularly if we're attractive or in some other way valuable. The word The world bids the world's currency. What is the world's currency? Stop and think about it. The world bids fame. You know, some people sell their souls just so they can be famous. There are people that that spend hours coming up with YouTube videos that will go viral just because they want to be on the news somehow. Some of them make pretty good money doing this crazy stuff. But it's amazing. They want to be famous. They want to be well-known. The world also not only bids fame, but it also bids wealth. A lot of people think that, boy, making money is the most important thing you can do. And they think that somehow money will buy anything. Or the world bids power. Masses of power on people are on a power trip today. They'll wheel and deal and trample over others just to get more power. The world bids promiscuity. Many Men, many women have lost basically everything for the value of a moment's pleasure of indulgence. But see, into the the midst of this vast marketplace, here comes Jesus. And he's bidding on us. And the price he bids to rescue enslaved sinners is what? It's his blood. He offers to die for us. And it's God who controls the auction here. And it's God who says, sold to the Lord Jesus Christ for the price of his blood. When we are bought from the marketplace of sin. And as a result, we become Jesus' purchased possession. We are his. And we must live for him rather than ourselves. As Peter and Paul both indicate. John Calvin said this, We are redeemed by the Lord for the purpose of consecrating ourselves And all are members to him. That's why he redeems us. And we need to remember that as we enter into this section. Redemption was introduced all the way back in chapter 3, verse 24 in the book of Romans. So we're finding here an example of that truth, which is doctrinal, but it's coming over into the practical, the more application. Well, not only that, but secondly, we are a new creature in Christ. The Bible says that we are a new creature in Christ. And I think that that's an important point for us to remember. That first of all, we're not our own, but also that we are a new creature in Christ. That we have a death from our past. When Christ redeemed us from sin through his blood, Christ saved us and he separated us from our sin. He made us a new person in Christ. If we're truly converted, we are not the same person we were before we met Jesus Christ. Before we yielded our life to him. 
And that's what in Romans chapter 6 he talks about there. Paul says when we went through that, he says we're dead to sin. That we died to sin. That we no longer live in sin. So instead of offering the parts of our bodies to sin, in verse 13 he says, as instruments of wickedness, now we need to offer ourselves to God as those who have been, have been brought from death to life and the parts of our bodies to him as instruments of what? Righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul writes this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. And then he says this in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, that's a glorious truth that we need to hold on to. You know, we don't need to get caught up in what we used to be. We need to trust God for what he's allowing us to be today and what he'll make us to be tomorrow. In that text, when he talks about the word dying there in Romans chapter 6, when he says we died to sin, that's in the aorist tense. And it refers to something that has been done once and for all. It's not something that we do continuously. See, we died to sin means that as a result of our own union with Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, we become new creations in Christ. And we can never go back to what we were before, ever. I mean, that's a a wonderful truth to hold on to. And see, if we start the Christian life with that kind of knowledge, the idea that we can't go back, we can only go forward, that's a blessed place to be. Some people refer to this dying to sin as different things. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce points out this. Dying to sin does not mean the following. It does not mean that it is my duty to die to sin. Secondly, it does not mean that I am commanded to die to sin. Thirdly, it doesn't mean that I am to consider sin as a dead force within me. Nor does it mean that I am dead to sin so long as I am gaining mastery over it. Or fifth, he says, it does not mean that sin in me has been eradicated. The last thing he says, it doesn't mean is that counting myself dead to sin makes me insensitive to it. Just because you say it doesn't make it so. And he goes on and he says, what Paul is saying here is that we have already died to sin. In the sense that we cannot successfully return to our old lives. Therefore, since that is true, we might as well get on with the task of living for the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day and forgetting about the sinning and forgetting about the past and present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. The third thing that I want us to understand as a foundational truth is that we are to die to self so that we can live for Christ. Jesus pointed this out over and over. And it's almost paradoxical in the way, what do you mean you've got to die to live? That, that doesn't make any sense. It's difficult for the natural man to understand this. But I also wanna, want you to understand it's not difficult, really, when you look at it on its face value. Basically, he's saying dying to self means putting aside your personal desires, putting aside what you want. See, if you do that, then you will experience a full and rewarding life. We'll be happy Christians. See, the problem is not that we don't understand that. We do. The problem is not with our understanding. The problem is that we do not believe it. (laughs) 
You're saying if I set my agenda aside, then I'm going to be happy? I don't think so. Because I want stuff. And when I don't get that stuff, that doesn't make me happy. And you're saying I shouldn't want this stuff. I should set my desires aside. And if we think, if we deny ourselves, what we think is we will be miserable. But see, beloved, the word of God says nothing can be further from the truth. And when you believe that, you're believing a lie. You're, you're, you're disbelieving God. It's a failure of faith. So I want to ask you, who are you willing to believe, yourself or God? I mean, we have example after example in the word of God about this kind of thinking. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Jesus himself said this. And this flies in the face of how the world thinks. It's, it's polar opposite. But this is what God says is true. He says, happy or blessed is a better word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those statements are called the Beatitudes. It means make a way to happiness or blessing. But that's not how the world thinks. The world thinks just the opposite. If the world would write the Beatitudes, it would say this, Blessed are the rich, for they can have all they want. Blessed are the powerful, for they can control others. Blessed are the sexually liberated, for they can fully satisfy themselves. Blessed are the famous, for they will be envied. See, that's how the world thinks. And it's the polar opposite of what Christ says is true. And I would say that a lot of believers go down that road. They don't trust what Christ is saying. They would rather go the way of the world rather than go the way of sacrifice. If you think about it carefully, the world promises blessings for those who follow those kind of standards. But is that what they find? I mean, we're mature here in this room. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. Take, for example, a person who thinks that the way to happiness is wealth. I mean, there's, the world is filled with myriads of examples of people who have been very, very, very wealthy, but they're miserable. Some people set goals. I just need $100,000. When they get 100000 they just need two. When they need two, they just need a million. And it goes on and on and on. Someone asked John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world, at one point, he was asked on one occasion, how much money is enough? How much? How much is enough? And his answer was honest. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There was a Texas millionaire who once said, I thought money could buy happiness But since I've had it, I've been miserably disillusioned. Another person may find blessedness or happiness through power in the world. So maybe they go into politics. They think where the power lies. And they win a little local election, maybe to the school board and then to the city council. And then pretty soon they're on a state seat. Pretty soon they're back in D.C. in the Senate. Maybe one day they're the president of the United States. But they realize in the end that power never satisfies. 
There was one great statesman who told Billy Graham this. He says, I am an old man. Life has lost all meaning. I am ready to take a faithful leap into the unknown. (laughs) How sad is that? See, that me first philosophy does not lead to happiness. As a matter of fact, Paul in Romans chapter 1, he calls that mentality, he calls that a lie. He says in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonor, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Here's what it says in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for what? For a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, we need to wake up. We need to realize that this world is not here permanently. This is not what God calls us to serve. And so Paul cries out in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We shouldn't be surprised at this. Jesus spoke this way in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. Jesus told his own disciples, if you come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We need to honestly and openly be reminded that you know what god's values are not ours that we need to trust in what he says and then the last foundational principle here is that we as believers as priests the bible calls us priests we're called to offer ourselves look at what it says as a living sacrifice thank god it says that you know when you when you stop and you think about the sacrificial system There's the priest and there's the victim. And it brings us to this final foundational truth. The idea that, you know what? We're to offer ourselves as as a living sacrifice. That's what Paul was saying. This is not done for us. This is something that we have to do ourselves. This is the obedience in the Christian life that comes from faith. As Paul wrote all the way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that what? That comes from faith. See, we don't just get a free pass on everything. We're called to a life of obedience. I mean, it's an interesting mental picture. Picture, if you think about it, this living sacrifice. A sacrifice was something in the Old Testament that was offered to God by the priest. A priest would take a sacrifice offered by the worshiper. He would carry it to the altar. He'd slit its throat. He'd drain the blood out. And then they would burn the sacrifice, the body of the sacrifice. And in that situation, the priest and the offering were two separate entities. They were two separate things. 
But what Paul does here is he takes those two separate entities and he brings them together. And he says, you know what? As priests, you're not going to bring something else. You're going to bring yourself. And you're going to offer yourself as a sacrifice. We are the priests who present the offering. And the offering we present is us. Our own bodies. As a living sacrifice. I mean, is there a model for this in Scripture? Is this something new? Of course there's a model. When you stop and think about it, the model for this is who? It's Jesus himself. He was the high priest. He was both the sacrifice and the priest who made the sacrifice. Now, there's a big difference between the sacrifice Jesus made for us and these sacrifices that we're called to made, this living sacrifice, because we know that Jesus' sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice. It satisfied God. He died in our place. He bore the punishment of God for our sin so that we don't have to bear that. We call that death a substitutionary death. Now, please understand, our sacrifice is not like that at all. There's no atonement granted when we yield ourselves a living sacrifice because Christ paid the price for our atonement. But in the Old Testament, even, there were different kinds of sacrifices that the priests made. There were sacrifices for sin, of course. They looked upon a, an animal or whatever, and they would shed that animal's life. And it was a substitutionary atonement looking forward to the, the death of Christ on the cross. And once Christ was sacrificed on the cross, we don't need those kind of offerings anymore for sin because Christ died once for all. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you understand you're about as holy as you're ever going to get? Pretty interesting thought when you think about it. In God's eyes, you are. Now, practically, we need a lot of work. <laughs> but our standing before God is, is, is a standing of holiness. But see, in addition in the Old Testament to the, the sacrifices for sins that they made, there were also other sacrifices. There were sacrifices of thanksgiving that were offered by worshipers who maybe they just wanted to thank God for a great blessing. And this is the kind of sacrifice that Paul is dialing down on here as a living sacrifice. That word, sacrifice, it's just not a good word today in our society, is it? Nobody likes to sacrifice. It brings thoughts of need or, or thoughts of want into our hearts. Most people don't want to sacrifice even a single little thing. They got their stuff and they're holding on to it with white knuckles. And you better not touch it because it's theirs. Or maybe we want to acquire things. We don't want to sacrifice things. We want to do the opposite. We want to get more. I mean, that's how our society is set up. But this is where the Christian life starts, beloved. It's God's instruction and it's desire for us. And it's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect from what this verse says, even if it doesn't seem to be. So will you trust God that he knows what he is doing? Will you believe him in this as in all other matters concerning your salvation? See, if you will believe him, you'll do exactly what Paul urges you to do in Romans chapter 12. You will offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. And by doing so, you'll prove that his will is perfect. Now, when you come to this verse, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore. Some translations have, therefore, I appeal to you. But let's look at that word, therefore. 
the word therefore kind of launches this new subject, this new discussion. Remember, we, we go back to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and we were talking about what? We were mostly talking about Israel. We were talking about righteousness. We were talking about a lot of doctrinal issues up to this point in the book of Romans. And this word, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 12, connects all this stuff that was previous into this application. Well, what has been said? Well, back in Romans chapter 1, Paul said the world desperately needs to get right with God. Right? They exchanged the glory of God for the, the creation, and they were in a mess. And then in Romans 3 through 5, basically, he says the way the world is to get right with God is revealed through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the, the gift of justification, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have God count one's faith as righteous. He sees you justified. And then thirdly, in Romans chapter 6, verse uh, 1 through 839, the believers now what we call sanctified. In other words, they're set apart. They're set free from sin to life eternal with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And then in Romans 9 to 11, we've seen that, you know what? The believer or the church, not Israel, was who God was going to use in this church age. Because Israel was disobedient. Israel was disbelieving God. And so God said, all right, you know what? I'm going to take you out of the game for a while. You're going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And Gentiles began to get saved. And the church was born. And this is the age in which we live in today. There's a lot more Gentiles being saved today than there are Jewish people. There are some Jews. There's always a remnant. We talked about all that through chapters 9 through 11. And one day, God will come back to Israel because they will grow jealous when they see God working in the Gentile nations and they'll grow jealous. And the Bible says that in the end, all Israel will be saved. They'll stand before God and they'll, they'll weep because they'll realize they, they crucified their own Messiah. What a glorious day that will be. But see, this is a message of how much God loves us and what God has done for us. And he points this out pretty clearly. God has met our desperate need to get right with him. God has provided the power to set us free from these bondages of sin. And he's given us a very glorious purpose to life that we should proclaim the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How men and women can be set free from sin and death and live eternally with God forever. So therefore, he says, this is, this is changing Something's changing here. After chapter 11, there's an incredible life-altering teaching that's very practical. Up to this point, 1 through 11, we've been focusing on theological doctrine. And now he says, you know what? Based on that theological doctrine that I've just taught you, I want you to apply that to your life. You know, that's how it goes. Doctrine and duty always go together. And whenever you separate the two... You either end up in legalism or just not living for the Lord. You know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of stuff up here in their head. They know every doctrine there is to know. But it doesn't carry over to their duty. It, they live a life that's a sham. Or there's people that are carrying out religious duty all the time, but they don't know any doctrine. And they're not interested in learning any doctrine. So they have a very shallow faith. Doctrine and duty always go together. What we believe helps us determine how we behave. See, it's not enough just to understand the first 11 chapters of Romans. You have to translate what he's taught us into everyday practical living. 
to show us daily how we can trust God in his word. And so his readers here have been shown the gospel. They've been shown things like justification and sanctification. They've been shown the doctrines of grace and election and perseverance. God's providential care for them. And now he wants them to understand. Therefore, based on that, I want you to understand how this fleshes out in your own life. He shifts his focus from instruction to exhortation. You don't find a lot of exhortations in chapters 1 through 11. He's just sharing you the information. But now, beginning in verse 12, we're going to see exhortation after exhortation. It moves from the indicative to the imperative, you might say. And he wants us to know. Paul's already made this this clear back in chapter 6 and verse 4. He shows that our union with Christ in his death and resurrection leads to our walking in newness of life. It has to have some practical value. Or in verse 13, he says that we should present ourselves to God as those who are alive from out of the dead. 6.13. So these are not just something that Paul adds on to the end of the book. These are truths that we need to understand. And this is what Paul does. He did it in Ephesians chapter 4. If you look at the book of Ephesians, if you want a real simple outline to the book of Ephesians... You read the first three chapters, and what are they? It's doctrine. It's doctrine. He's talking about spiritual blessings in Christ, prayer, grace through faith, the gospel. And then in in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I therefore, in other words, based on everything I just taught you in this book, I'm going to apply it. That's what he does. He does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, the first several chapters, Chapters, three chapters, are basically doctrine. And then he moves from theology to practice. So think of it this way. In Romans chapter 1 through 11, we've been learning what God has given to us. That's what we've been learning. All the blessings that God has given to us are captured in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. But now, in chapter 12, he switches. And he gives way to what we are to give to God. The tables turn now. Based on all these blessings that God has given to you, here's what I expect from you. God's giving to us is not simply a past basis for, for Christian obedience. God doesn't give it to us. That. It's, it's a continuous source. He's continually giving to us. And because of that, Paul wants us to understand if we're going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with sincere hearts, in a way that honors God. It's in John chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus said, True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Do you ever think that God is seeking worshipers? And he desires that of us? But we have to do it the right way. Philippians 3, 3, Paul defines Christians as those who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, every Christian is like Melchizedek, a priest of the, of the most high God. And together we make up a, a spiritual priesthood, the Bible says. The church is a holy priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2 says. And those whose calling it is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
It's a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into the marvelous, into his marvelous light. See, our supreme calling as believers, beloved, is not to get up every Sunday morning and come and sit here and listen to someone exegete the scriptures. I mean, that's a blessing. That's wonderful. Praise God we have a place to come and meet. But that's not what our calling is. Our calling isn't to come here and play instruments or or come here and sing or come here and talk with each other and eat food after church. This should be an overflow of of our weekly spiritual service to Christ. See, if you're coming through these doors Sunday after Sunday with the mentality of who's going to serve me today, that food better be good. Sermon might be better. They better sing my song. You're coming with the wrong attitude. You're not going to receive a blessing. You're going to walk away with a critical spirit. You're going to walk away with a critical heart. He didn't preach that. Oh, that song. I didn't like that song. Oh, that food. Boy, that clogs up your... That's not good food. You're going to have all kinds of things bad to say. But if you come with the intent of, you know what? I am here today as part of the body of Christ to serve the body of Christ. Your whole mentality changes. I mean, men, think about it. When the ladies have us serve them at their conferences or their dinners, their picnics or whatever teas they have, all the stuff they have, and they call on us to serve them, okay? We don't march into the the fellowship hall and sit down and, and, you know, what's for dinner? You know, we don't do that. Why? Because we're there to serve. We come with a mentality of, you know what? We're going to serve. We're going to, we're going to, we want to make the women happy. We want to do what it takes to serve them today. Why? Because that's why we came. And so when we go away hungry, we're not groaning because we didn't come to eat. We came to serve. See, it's, it's so different. The whole mentality changes. True worship includes many things besides the obvious things of prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. See, true worship, if you want to worship the Lord out of sincerity of your heart, it also includes serving God By serving others in his name. That's truly what it is. Especially those of the household of faith. Especially fellow believers. Sacrificial worship includes doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifice, God is pleased. See, our supreme act of worship, beloved, is to offer ourselves wholly and continually to the Lord as living sacrifices. I heard a professor tell us one day, in, in school, when I was studying to go into the ministry, it was a um, pastoral class. So they taught you about baptism, how to baptize people. They taught you all this stuff. And I remember him saying toward the end of the class, he said, you've learned a lot. Our, our classes were just three weeks long because we were on a module. He says, you learned a lot in these three weeks. But you know what? The one thing that I'm going to tell you now is so very important that you understand. If you have any inclination of going into the ministry in any fashion, you heard it from me first, you're throwing your life away. I was like, what? That's not what I expected to hear. And he explained what he meant. He goes, you're throwing your life away. You know what? It's not about you anymore. If you're going to serve the Lord the king of kings, and you're going to serve his people, you're nothing. Your life is over. 
as you know it. And you know what? That is so true. (laughs) It is so true. But it is such an incredible blessing to be able to know what God has called you to do and have the freedom to do it day in and day out without all the noise of what people think or what people are concerned about. It doesn't matter. Because your, your ear is tuned to one voice and one voice only. Am I doing what God wants me to do today? See, and when you stop and you approach ministry, you don't have to be a pastor to have that. Every individual Christian should have that same mentality. When we come to Christ, you know what? Our life is over. We don't get to pick and choose what we, we want to, you know, lay aside. No, he says, you're mine. I bought you with a price. And when you think about the victory in the Christian life, all that we have in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, that, that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Colossians 2, 3, and 10 says, All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we have been made complete in Christ. 2 Peter 1.3 says that everything pertaining to life and godliness is ours. 1 John 2.27 says that not only did God grant us all that, but he gave us the Holy Spirit to teach us about all things so that we may not be wanting. I want you to leave here this morning with this truth, and then we'll close. In the deepest eternal sense, I want you to understand this. That you cannot have more of God or more from God than what you possess right now as a believer. You cannot have more of God or more from God than what you possess right now because of your standing in Christ before God. Unfortunately, most of us don't have the fullness of joy that the fullness of this blessing should bring. The joy and satisfaction for which so many Christians are striving for can be can be theirs if they just surrender. If they just go back to the beginning and say, you know what, Lord, you're right. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about the simple principle that you taught in Scripture. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You know what? If you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, there's not a whole lot of love left for you. There's just not. And so truly you come to understand that, you know what? This Christian life that I've been called for is a life of sacrifice. And the sooner we understand that, the sooner we will function as a church in a more glorious way for him. Because all of a sudden we don't matter anymore. We're more concerned about the other person than we are ourselves. We're looking to get busy for Christ. We're looking to serve in ways that maybe we don't even feel gifted. But you know what? It needs to be done, so I'm going to do it. By God's grace, I'm going to do it. The problem is we sometimes we're asked to do things or needs are made known. And what do we have to? Well, I have to pray about that. What do you have to pray about? Just get busy. Just do what is expected of you. You know, it, it's, it, it's one thing to serve out of need, but it's another thing to serve because you know what? You want to serve. And I've dealt with people throughout years in ministry who, who come to churches and they just want to serve. And so, you know, I don't even know where to put them. I don't know what to do with them. I don't know what their gifts are. But, you know, okay, try this. Well, that didn't work. Try this. And I just kind of keep plugging them in. Because they want to serve sincerely. 
And eventually God gives them that, that place of service. And wow, and then they, can, they, they, they can begin to grow in that. So many of us think we need a, hours in prayer before we decide, oh, you know, before we can lift our finger to do anything. You know, or we use the excuse, well, no one asked me. <laughs> Get over it. Shouldn't have to ask you. I mean, if, if this church operated by people asking other people to do things, it wouldn't operate at all. It should be in your heart to serve the body of Christ because you're serving the one who saved you. Father, we thank you for your grace this morning. Lord, thank you that you've called us to a life of service. That you've called us not to bring us and kill us on an on a altar somewhere. But Lord, you, you called us to be a living sacrifice. And a living sacrifice works and breathes and sweats. And desires to do all it, all it can to, to serve you. Lord, help us to set aside our selfishness. Lord, we're all that way at times. We all go there. We want things to fit into our schedule. We don't have time for this. We don't have time for that. In all eternity, that's not going to matter. Because what's going to matter is what we do for you. That's what will last. We could have millions of dollars in the bank and be starving spiritually. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts. Help us to serve you in a manner that's honoring to you. Lord, I pray if there's any here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that, Lord, today they would realize that, that he's the only one that can pay for their sin. And if you, if you convict them of their sin before a holy God, that they would yield their life to you. Father, they cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.